Well, welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you're new here, we're very uh, glad you could join us this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you one that you can either keep or just use for this morning's service. Uh, there is a gentleman in the front row, if you could bring uh, one to him. Anybody else? Whenever you go into a church, bring a Bible. And if they don't offer you a Bible, that's a problem. <laughs> Because you need a Bible. The Bible, the Word of God, has been my great guide, and I know it has been for you as well. And, you know, honestly, I can't imagine living in this world without Jesus. And I can't imagine living in this world without having uh, truth in my hand. And the truth that you hold in your hand this morning is the only truth you're going to get. The only real truth, and it's not going to be messed with or shouldn't be messed with, although there are people who mess with the Word of God and they shouldn't do that. All we, our great privilege is just to come and to read what's there and, and bring out of that what is there. We don't have to add anything. We don't have to subtract anything. In fact, other than reading the Scripture, every word that comes out of my mouth is a liability. <laughs> it's true, and that's what brings a sobriety to it. And I have failed many times. And I will continue to, but my hope is not to, my desire is not to. But let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. And we may only get through verse 20, uh, verses 13 through 20. We may only get that far today. And we'll just see what happens here. If you remember, last week we were looking at verses uh, 5 through 12 and Maybe just a little more, um, Ed, if you could bring it down just a little bit more, that'd be great. Uh, That the Pharisees and the Sadducees were um, having this dialogue with Jesus, and they wanted to see a sign, and he said, no sign's going to be given this wicked generation, this wicked and adulterous generation, except for the sign of Jonah. And you remember that they went from the this area of Magdala, which is on the eastern shore, uh, excuse me, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they crossed over to the eastern portion, and they had forgotten bread. And Jesus, if you remember, the disciples being a little uh, uh, frustrated that they had forgot the bread, Jesus uh, told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he even brought it into clearer focus for us, in verse 12, he says, Beware of the leaven of bread. Or he says, I didn't. Um, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The doctrine. Doctrine is very important, and especially today. It's always been important because doctrine is really teaching. And so when the Lord is teaching us through his word, he's giving us his opinion. And I think his opinion, actually, it's not his opinion, it's his fact, his truth, there, there, there's, it's not up, to, up for grabs. We can't just make it what we want it. And yet people do that. But we need to take the Word of God, all of it. And that's why we go systematically through the Bible. A book is meant to be read from cover to cover. Amen? And so this was not given to us so that we could just cherry pick what we want. No, we got to read all of it. God meant for us to read it. And through the whole entire Bible, we learn the doctrines of the Bible, what the Bible teaches, what God is telling us, doctrines that are very important. And so Jesus was saying, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were telling people a lot of things that weren't in the Scriptures. And many denominations today are teaching churches things that aren't in the Word of God and holding them in the same light as the Scripture. In other words, making teaching doctrines that are not in the Bible, but teaching them as if they are. And it doesn't matter whether some man waved his hand over it or, or, or spoke it. If it's not here, folks, we have to hold it, in very, hold it very far from us. Because man's word is not what's important. God's word is what is important. Amen? Would somebody tell the mainstream media that? Man's word means nothing, but God's word is everything, right? 
And so as Jesus was telling them that to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, notice, let's read uh, verses 13 through 20. So when he came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, because remember he traveled from the west coast now to the east coast, and, he, and, and, and the Bible tells us that Jesus, um, in between verses 12 and 13, there is a section of Scripture. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26. But basically it's an account of Jesus in Bethsaida, which is in the northwestern, northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He stopped there to minister to a man and heal him of his, of his sight because he was blind. But then Jesus continues to go north and we will see this, and I'll just put a, um, um, let me see here, did I get the wrong slide here? I did. Hang on one second. You guys are seeing all my stuff here. Okay. I'm going to have to do something here because I want you to see this. Sorry about this. Minor technical problems. Eventually everything happens to you. Okay, there's what I wanted. Okay. So there we go. All right. I will be referencing a few things up here. So, okay, so Jesus... He, he goes from this northern part of the Sea of Galilee in Bethsaida up there in the uh, northwestern corner, and he continues going north to Caesarea Philippi. Notice what it says. It says, Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. A very interesting passage, and certainly much has been written about these verses, and admittedly they're very difficult. Some of them are very difficult, but I think Hopefully today we'll be able to look at these things in a logical way and biblically, and it'll help us to understand what they really mean. And so let's go back to verse 13. So Jesus came into this region of Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi is an area up in the northern part of Israel, literally just south of Mount Hermon. Now you may, don't be confused by Caesarea. Uh, This is not to be confused with Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea, which you see um, on the... um, Slide on the, on the screen here, on a map, uh, Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea by the Sea, is south uh, east, or southwest, excuse me, on the shore of Israel, and we visit this place when we go to Israel, and we also visit Caesarea Philippi uh, as well, but Caesarea Philippi is just to the south of Mount Hermon, the largest, the tallest mountain in Israel, but this place, Caesarea Philippi, is located near the Banias uh, spring, which is one of the tributaries that come down from Mount Hermon from the north, and it feeds the upper Jordan River. And Jesus was near this place, as we see, where the Canaanites in Old Testament times, they used to worship false gods at this place. And for those of you who have been to Israel, and you've been to this very spot in this area where, I'm, where we're looking at in the scripture, there is a cave there at Caesarea Philippi called the Gates of Hell. And it's basically a a big hole in the ground uh, amidst the background of rock and a big rock cliff. 
And there's a big hole in the ground. They call that the gates of hell. And people used to worship Pan, the false god Pan. And what they would do is they would sacrifice their children by throwing them into the gates of hell to sacrifice and to worship this god Pan. And this was postpartum, right? Isn't it amazing? Some things never change. And Planned Parenthood was right there with their little banner. But Jesus was, uh, perhaps, was pointing to this area or making reference to it when he made this comment about the gates of hell not prevailing, not prevailing against the church. And what Herod had done at this place, and when we visit this, you'll notice there's a, there's a marble platform, and there used to be a temple there that Herod the Great had built there. It was a pagan temple. And then after he passed away, and, and um, his son uh, Philip the Tetrarch, he built the city up and um, named it after himself and, of course, Emperor or Augustus Caesar, hence the name Caesar or Caesarea Philippi. So Philip got his name in there. What a humble guy, you know. And so, um, but notice what Jesus says in verse 13. It's really telling, and it's the title of the message this morning. He says, who do men say I, the Son of Man, am? Who do they say that I am? Notice that Jesus understood who he was. He wasn't confused. He wasn't having a midlife crisis. He wasn't having an identity crisis. He wasn't wringing his hands going, I hope they understand how great I am and all that I'm going to do for them, these miserable wretches. He wasn't wringing his hands. He wasn't worried about who he was. He wasn't even really concerned about what people thought of him. Notice he's drawing his disciples out. God often does that. Jesus, the word of God, often does that. It draws us out. Because we can get inward, can't we? Has anybody been inward over the last couple of years? You just kind of, you shut down and you close and you start getting inward? Well, the Lord wants to draw you out. And he's drawing his disciples out. He's drawing them out. Jesus knew who he was because he said, notice he gives them the answer in the question, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Well, you're the son of man. Of course, the disciples knew this. They were growing in their understanding of who Jesus was. They were growing in it. They didn't completely comprehend it really well, but they were growing in it just as you and I are. And they had Christ right before them. And so Jesus used this phrase, the Son of Man, dozens of times in the Gospels. We can't look at all of them, but we'll just look at a few of them. In Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus speaking, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Matthew 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A phrase, a messianic title, just like the Son of God or the, the, the Son of David. The Son of Man is also a messianic title. In Matthew 19, 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, speaking of in the millennial reign, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, the Son of Man, Matthew 26, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Literally dozens more, but the one I really want to focus on is Daniel. Because as Jesus is using this phrase, he is no doubt pointing them, or at least intimating, hey, have you read Daniel? And certainly every Jew in synagogue has heard Daniel chapter 7 and the whole entire book. But you recall that in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel received a vision. And in that vision, in verse 13 in chapter 7, he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man... There it is, the Son of Man. There was no mistake why Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He's at, very, at the very least, he's referring them to this passage. And probably others, but that's a big one, because this one tells us exactly who he is and also what his plan is and yet in the future, to even us today. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, speaking of God the Father. 
And he came and he brought him near before him. And then to him, speaking of Jesus, was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, notice, is an everlasting dominion. And only someone who is everlasting can have an everlasting dominion. Follow? Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus used this phrase of himself, he was at the very least pointing them to Daniel. So again, Jesus says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In Matthew's Gospel, remember the disciples As I said before, they were growing in their understanding of who Jesus was as well. And what does it tell us here in Matthew 8? Remember remember when there was a storm earlier in Jesus' ministry and they were going across the Galilee and a great storm came up. Jesus sleeping in the boat in the back. His disciples came and and woke him and said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And so the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So even they were growing. And are you growing today? I would like to say that I'm growing. Me personally, I'm growing in my understanding of who Jesus is. And I know that you are all as well. We're growing as he reveals more of himself to us. When somebody asks us, asks us, who is this? Who, who, who do you say that Jesus is? Every single day, it becomes a little clearer to us. It becomes a little more focused for us. And maybe someday when we're an old saint and we're around our deathbed, if the Lord should tarry that long, I wonder what our understanding of Jesus is going to be. I wonder if we're going to have such a, a better understanding of who he is. We're just like, Lord, just reach out your hand and I'm with you. And I believe it's going to be like that. There's going to be this understanding that it's just going to be just like passing from one thing to another. And it's going to be so wonderful. And Can you imagine? So verse 14, they said, well, who do men say that you are? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But why John the Baptist? There were rumors that John the Baptist rose from the dead after Herod Antipas had beheaded him. And Herod even believed this. Think of the lunacy of this man. He chopped his head off. His, his head was brought to his daughter-in-law on a platter to give to her mother. Happy birthday, mama. It really wasn't her birthday, it was his birthday, but that's you know what she wanted. And yet he still thinks that he rose from the grave. So Herod is not quite there. I think if there was a padded room back at that time, he might be a candidate. Even in Matthew 14, what does it tell us? At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist! He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now, at that time, Herod had already put Jesus to death. Or, excuse me, put John to death. So he thinks that he's still alive. But why Elijah? As the Jewish nation was looking forward to the kingdom of heaven that they thought was very near at hand, perhaps they were thinking about Malachi. In verses 5 through 6, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Maybe they were thinking that this man, that Jesus was Elijah. But the Bible says Elijah, doesn't it? Does it not? Doesn't it say Elijah? See, I believe that this passage is for yet future, and I believe Elijah will show up in the tribulation period. We read about that in Revelation 11, the one of the two witnesses. But although this will happen in its ultimate fulfillment in the great tribulation period, the Jews may have been thinking that Jesus was actually Elijah. But what about Jeremiah? Matthew's gospel is the only one that mentions Jeremiah. 
The prophet Jeremiah was known for his heartfelt concern for the nation. He was the weeping prophet, the one who wrote lamentations, lamenting over the destruction and the depravity of Jerusalem. And also, he was rejected at every corner. It fit very much like Jesus. But what about another prophet or the prophet? We know that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God, God speaking to Moses, to the people of Israel, before they would cross over into the promised land, he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So this last reference to Jesus being the prophet was the only real true one because that Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, that passage actually fit who Jesus really is. But he wasn't Elijah. He wasn't Jeremiah. He wasn't somebody else. He wasn't John the Baptist. So verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And that is the the thing that we have to consider this morning. Who is Jesus? Who's Jesus to you? It's a great question for the church in America, especially. Is the Jesus you worship the Jesus of the Bible, or is he a Jesus that allows you to continue in fornication, who allows you to continue in your homosexuality? Is he a Jesus that allows you to continue in your drinking, your dishonesty, and your fraud? Is that who your Jesus is? And there are churches in America, that is their Jesus. But it's not a Jesus of the Bible. So is doctrine important? We looked at that last week, we spent quite a bit. Is doctrine important? Who is Jesus? What is he to you? Well, how do you find out who Jesus is? You read the word of God. You find out who he is. You're not going to find out who he is apart from the scripture, right? But some churches are allowing compromise. We looked at that last week. But they're worshiping at the feet of another Jesus. And there are Protestants and Catholic fellowships that are worshiping a different Jesus than the Jesus whom the Bible portrays. The word of God is right, and every other cult, every other faction, every other denomination's version of Jesus is wrong if it is different from the word of God. It doesn't matter who they are. And why do people tolerate such stuff? Let me tell you why. Because they are not being taught from the Bible, and they don't know themselves. Many people go to church every Sunday and the, the leadership, the teacher, the pastor, or the, the priest, whatever, is not telling the people the truth, not giving them all of the counsel of God, not telling, telling them about Jesus. I don't care about church doctrines. I don't care about church traditions. I want to hear what the Bible says. That's all that matters. This. And only this. I don't care about what, what they've been doing for hundreds of years. Is it in here? Does it go against the scripture? Some traditions aren't bad, you know, like potlucks. I love potlucks. After all, you guys are calorie chapel, right? <laughs> calorie chapel. That's a good tradition. There's nothing wrong with that. Eating together, the early church did that. They broke bread together, and sometimes we break a lot of bread together, or break sauce or noodles, pasta. (laughs) Excellent sauces made three days in advance, stewing in the pot for days with a bay leaf, a few here and there. I didn't eat breakfast, so that's why I'm bringing (laughs) up. But America used to send missionaries to foreign countries to tell them about Jesus. And I'm afraid that these, these missionaries need to come back to America and tell America who Jesus is. We are the ones who need to be evangelized again. Not you so much, but many people in America have no idea. They have no biblical literacy whatsoever. And they're not being taught in their church. If you're not being taught the scriptures, if you're not being taught about Jesus Christ, then leave the church. Why are you there? If you're not learning about Jesus. So last week I exposed the error on Protestants and Catholics. This week I'm going to expose a few cults. Because who is Jesus to you? 
Who is Jesus to you? It's a great question. Is Jesus what Jehovah's Witnesses think of him? Is what they believe true? The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he was just a holy man, but they do not believe that he is God come in human flesh. They don't believe that Jesus is God. And that is a critical tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus is God. Otherwise, how could he die for our sins? How could he die once unless he was God Almighty in the flesh, taking the punishment upon himself, the only one who had perfection, who was completely pure from his inception? Through the virgin birth, he never sinned. Only the Lamb of God, that's his name, that's his other name, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only he can do this. He is the Logos. He is the Word of God become flesh. And what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know, we've been through John, and we've been through Revelation, the Word is the Logos. That's what the Greek word means. The Word literally is Logos. It means the very expression of God, the very thought of God. When you see the golden arches, when you're going along Route 90, and you're hungry, and it's around noon, what does that mean to you? It means McDonald's. It's a logo. It means something. It represents, you already taste the burger in your mouth. You already know what that double cheese, or that double uh, quarter pounder with cheese tastes like, the salty greasiness of it. (laughs) You already know what it's like. You already know. And that's what the logo, and sorry to be equated to food, but uh, (laughs) Jesus is the logos. He's God come in human flesh. That's why the Bible makes no mistake. And grammatically, this is exactly what it means. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God the Father, and He was God. He is God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, it even says, For there are three that bear record or bear witness in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Who is this Word in the center? We all know it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Word is the Son. The Word is Jesus. Follow? So the Word is Jesus. But what about the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible? What do they have for us? I want you to read these two verses. They're the same verses in chapter 1. The King James and all English translations of the Bible say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Ah, but the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, the Jehovah's Witness Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Do you see a problem with this? Can you see the problem? It's a small little word. It's an indirect It's an indirect word, right? A. Not was God, but was a God? Does the original language in which the Bible was written in Greek, does that actually support this rendering? No, it does not. And don't believe me, not only is it not supported in the Greek language, but it also promotes polytheism. He's just one of many. One of many gods. Choose your, your God Choose your flavor, Baskin-Robbins. In Michael Van Buskert's article, it's called The Scholastic Dishonesty of the Watchtower, he says this, and I love this. He says, the rendering of the word, the rendering of the word was a God in the Jehovah's Witness Bible in the opening verse of John's Gospel has created much concern among Greek scholars all over the world. These scholars have repeatedly spoken out against such a rendering as a God, which separates Christ from being intrinsically God to the position of a lesser or a demigod. Excuse me, Dr. Julius Manti, another Greek scholar, was misquoted and wrongfully cited by the Watchtower Society, which is the Watchtower, uh, the Jehovah's Witness uh, organization there in, um, in Brooklyn, New York. He, this man, Julius Manti, um, 
They had misquoted and wrongfully cited him for their error. In short, uh, he said that the Greek language cannot support the indefinite article A. And, and again, if you run across a Jehovah's Witness and they try to argue you with, because they'll bring up the Gospel of John, if, you know, and you can show them that this, this is a huge problem. A huge problem. That the, the Greek language cannot support the indefinite article A before God. In this context, the way it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't, it's not in any other literature, but they, they do this. And Manti also said in the same letter written to the Watchtower Society, after pointing out many errors, he concludes by telling them this. He says, in view of the preceding facts, this is a letter he wrote to them, an open letter. In view of the preceding facts, especially because you have been quoting me out of context, I herewith request you to not quote the manual grammar of the Greek New Testament again, which you have been doing for 24 years. Also, that you do not quote it or me in any of your publications from this time on. Also, that you publicly and immediately apologize in the Watchtower magazine, since my words have no relevance to the absence of the article before Theos in John 1 verse 1. And please write to Charis, which is the organization, and state that you misused and misquoted my rule on the page before the preface and the grammar are these words, all rights reserved, no part of this book may be reproduced in any form without permission in writing from the publisher. And then he says, if you have such permission, please send me a photocopy of it. They're quoting him, but he, 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 didn't, he didn't give them that ability to do that. He says, and if you do not heed these requests, you will suffer the consequences. <laughs> Regrettably yours, Julius R. Manti. Pretty interesting. So what's in a word? Is it a big deal? Yes, it is. Is doctrine important? Who is Jesus to you? Is he God or is he just one of many? And that's a question that people have to answer today. Who is he to you? To this day, the Jehovah's Witnesses refuse the fact that Jesus is God, and yet this is the most important doctrine of the Christian church. So if Jesus is not God, then everything crumbles, and we are hopelessly doomed to hell. And we might as well, like Paul says to the Corinthians, if that is the case, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If what they're saying is true. And we know that obviously that it's not true. And no wonder the devil works so hard to refute and to attack this doctrine and the Christian church and the truth of the word of God. So let me ask you again, is doctrine important? What do the Mormons or the Church of Latter-day Saints, who do they say that Jesus is? They believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Yes, the spirit brother of Jesus. Satan and Jesus being spirit brothers. That's what they believe. And thus Satan being equal to Jesus. In their own publication called Ensign, it's a magazine by the Latter-day Saints, they said this, On first hearing, the doctrine that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus Christ are brothers may seem surprising to some, especially to those unacquainted with Latter-day Saints' revelations, but both the Scripture and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father and therefore spirit brothers. That's from their own publication. They believe they are spirit brothers. What do you think about that? What does the Bible say? Again, don't rely upon anybody. I don't care how, many, how smart they are, what college they've been to. What does the Bible say? That is your final authority, is what the Bible says. What does the Bible tell us? In Ezekiel, notice, this is very important. This is a critical verse. For some reason, and even in the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, they have a, a similar version of this, but I'll get to that in a minute. But look with me at Ezekiel 28, verse 11 through 15. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel, it says, verse 11, chapter 28, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, God is speaking to this king of Tyre, but then he quickly begins to address the power behind the throne, which God often does. He speaks to the man, but then he speaks to the power behind the throne, the one who is actually the puppeteer. And this he does. 
And he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now, listen carefully. Does this sound like the king of Tyre, a a mere mortal? Notice, you were the sum of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, the emerald, with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. Timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Do you see that? The day you were created. Is God speaking to the king of Tyre or is he speaking to Satan? Of course he's speaking to Satan. Because the king of Tyre was never in Eden. They didn't even know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. And he certainly wasn't there back when Adam and Eve was there. But who was in the Garden? We know who he is from chapter 3. The serpent. Satan himself. And notice, the timbrels and the pipes were prepared in you in the day you were created. Lucifer, the shining one, the one who was to bring worship to God. But then he, his heart became lifted up in pride and wanted to be worshipped himself. Is it any surprise that music today is capturing the hearts of teens and young people? The secular music bringing them in? Oh my goodness, it's powerful, folks. You know it's powerful. And then he goes on. You are the anointed cherub who covers. So he's not talking about the king of Tyre. He's talking about this cherub, this cherubim, this Lucifer, this one who was a created being. You were anointed, verse 14, the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You are perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So let me ask you. The, Jeho- the Mormon doctrine that Jesus and, and Lucifer, or Satan, they're, they're brothers, do you believe that now? <laughs> you shouldn't. One was uncreated. Jesus, the uncreated one. He always existed. Bah, but Lucifer was created. He was a created being. And what else does the Bible say? In Colossians, it tells us, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15, the firstborn over all creation. Notice, for by him, all things were created. He was the one who was never created. He is the one who creates. All, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible. There we go. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, who is the one who creates? Jesus. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. What does it tell us in the remainder of John chapter 1? That all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Nothing was made except through him, for him, and by him. And because he always existed, he is the creator. And yes, he did create Lucifer. But Lucifer's job was totally different. And God, for some reason, gave him free will to choose whether he's going to worship God or whether he's going to do something else. And of course, Lucifer, lifted up in his pride, wanted it all for himself. I kind of liken him to Gollum. It came to me, but I'm precious. He wants it. needs it. He just had to have the worship. He had to have the glory. And if Lucifer was a created being and Jesus is equal with God, and the scriptures clearly state that Jesus is equal with God the Father, then Lucifer was created and Jesus wasn't created. Jesus is the only uncreated one. Therefore, they definitely are not equal with one another. So is doctrine important? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because as we've already looked, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they have a different Jesus. A different Jesus that's not even in the Bible. You know what the kicker is? I actually looked up this passage in Ezekiel in the New World Translation, their their Bible, the the Jehovah's Witness Bible, and they actually have this, this passage in Ezekiel. And it talks about Lucifer being created. So I'm like, 
It's kind of a problem. Are you guys looking at your own thing? Aren't you looking there? It's a big deal. <laughs> doctrine, that's a doctrine that you must hold to as a believer. It's non-negotiable. And the Bible is filled with it. We, don't, we could spend a whole service or two on that by itself, but we won't. So who do you say that Jesus is? So Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this reply of Peter is significant because he is basically saying that Jesus is the one in whom all of the Old Testament scriptures were prophesying of, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, God come in human flesh, the Logos. Didn't also Martha make a similar profession of faith in John chapter 11? Remember when Lazarus was raised? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Christos, equivalent to the Mashiach, God in the flesh. She says, I believe that you are the Christos, the Son of God who is to come into the world. What about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And those are just two examples. He's the Son of God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar literally means son in the Hebrew, right? So son of John is really what, Bar-Jonah is really what it is. Simon Bar-Jonah is Peter's natural name, and Jesus was bringing attention to the fact that Peter's revelation was given to him by God the Father. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice that Jesus is, by saying this, agreeing with the assessment that Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't correct him and say, you know, it's not true, guys. I'm not the Messiah. David Koresh, who's coming into the world, he's going to be the Messiah. No, he didn't argue them. He says, you're right on the money. You're right, you're spot on. And flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I love that. And boy, Peter's going, man. If he had suspenders, he'd be doing this. Looking around there, looking, you bunch of weasels. Flexing his suspenders. Oh, yes, that's me. Looking good on this side, huh? But Jesus didn't reject that understanding because it was the truth. In verse 18, and he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, notice the grammar here is so important, and the words. In English, you can read this, and the Catholic Church has made a big deal out of this, and we're going to look at that here in just a few seconds. He says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall never prevail shall not prevail against it. Now there is a play on words in this verse and it's worth understanding because looking in the Greek is helpful here. Peter, the word Peter here, he says and I say unto you that you are Peter. This word in the Greek means Petros and you can look this up in a Strong's concordance. This is no this is easy. It means small rock. Petros is a small stone. And he goes, and on this rock, notice he didn't say on Peter. What was the rock? What was the rock? And on this rock, what is, the, what is, he, what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about Peter? Or, because if he did, then he would have said Petros again. But what does he say? He says, and on this rock, and the word in the Greek means Petra. Remember Petra? In, in Jordan, a big stone rock cliff fortress, that's what it means. A cliff, huge boulder, Grand Canyon style. On that rock, you are this little stone, but on this huge rock, this truth that you just were revealed to, Peter, on that rock, I will build my church. So is it Peter or is it the truth concerning what Peter just proclaimed? It's the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
a really wonderful man by the name of Richard Lenski, he wrote this and he says, the church does not rest on a quality found in Peter and in others like him. The church is not built on the confession her members make, which would change the effect into the cause. By her confession, the church shows on what she is built. She rests on the reality which Peter confessed, namely, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love that. The church doesn't rest on what we say. If the church was to be built on Peter, then why didn't Jesus just say it? Peter, you are Peter, and on you I will build my church. He didn't say that, did he? Two different words. One is feminine and one is masculine. Petros is is masculine. Petra is feminine. Two different words, two different genders. There are only two genders, right? Sorry, I had to go there. But the Roman Catholic Church, and again, I don't mean to bash on Catholics here. I'm getting on the case of their doctrine, okay? But the people God loves, they need to come to him. That's the whole reason they go to church is to learn about Jesus, hopefully. But the Roman Catholic Church has long used this verse to justify their dogma or their doctrine that Peter is the first pope. But they're wrong. That's not what it says. Not only is Peter not the first pope, but if they believe that he is, then why did they impose celibacy on all their priests when Peter himself was married? It's cruel. Peter would later show that all the believers, all of us, are all these small stones that are built together in Christ. What does it tell us in his epistle? He says, coming to him, speaking to Christ, as a, to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, Petros, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer, a spiritual, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And notice what Jesus said in verse 18 in our text this morning. I will also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, you are Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The word uh, for um, a church here is translated from the Greek, and it's uh, ekklesia, which means called out ones. You and I are called out from the world. Didn't Jesus say, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord? Come out from among the world and become part of the church in Jesus Christ. This is the first place in the New Testament where this word is used, where the word church is used, and it's ecclesia. And it's, it's used only twice in the, gospel account, in, in, in the gospel of Matthew, and it's not mentioned in any other of the gospel accounts. It's intimated through different other, other means, but these words... Remember Matthew's Gospels to show the kingdom and, and to, to show the program of the Messiah. And the program of the Messiah was to offer the nation of Israel the kingdom, but they refused it. And so God is going to offer it to another. And by receiving the Gentiles through jealousy, the, 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 the Jews will come to Christ. Many of them will. Many of them will not. Creating one body, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. And it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, and now we see this word ecclesia uh, twice in Matthew and all throughout the book of Acts, and we see it in Paul's letters all throughout the rest of the Bible. And then when we get to the book of Revelation, just in the first three chapters alone, it's mentioned 19 times. But remember in, in Revelation, the first two chapters two and three speak about the church age. And then once the church age is finished, the rapture of the church comes. And then the church is not mentioned in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation when, until the eternal state. And it's called something different. You know, it's called the armies in heaven coming back with Christ. It's called the saints and it's also called the bride, who you and I are. The church is the bride of Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile. But the church is an assembly of people gathering together for religious meetings, and we manage our own affairs. But in this context, Jesus is referring to people who believe in him, meaning believers in Christ who are born again of the Spirit of God. 
Because remember, the church was born when? On the day of Pentecost, right? It's when the church was, well, began. And that's why Jesus says, I will build my church. Speaking of future tense. Because he would die, be in the grave for three days. He would rise again, be seen by hundreds for 40 days. He would ascend to heaven 40 days after the Passover. And then 10 days after that, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God prophesied in Joel and other areas in the Scripture, the Spirit of God poured out upon the believers as they were there in the upper room. The church began that day. And the church remains until right now. And the church will remain until God calls us up. Like in Revelation chapter 4, he says, come on up here. Never thought you'd ask. We're ready. (laughs) Now would be good. You looking forward to seeing Jesus? Oh, man, I'm, I'm so excited about that. I don't care about anything else. Nothing. And it, wasn't, it was built upon Jesus, not upon Peter. What does it tell us in Corinthians? Paul, writing to them in chapter 3, verse 10, says, According to the grace of God, which was given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. Remember the parable about the rock? A man building his house on the rock and building his house on the sand. The guy who built his house on the sand, you know, Hurricane you know, Irma came and blew it away. But the man who founded his house on a rock, the rain came and it beat vehemently on that thing and it did not crumble. That's your life in Christ. The world is going to beat on you, people. He's beating on me, the devil, and the world, and he's going to beat on you. And don't you lose heart. You have placed your faith in the only one, the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, the Petra. No one can touch him. And he is our God, and you are his people. And he is going to protect you. You may not be, you may go through some difficulty on this earth, and persecution happens, but you will never see the wrath of God. Do you understand that? As the church, you will not see the wrath of God. Repeat after me. We will not see the wrath of God. One more time. We will not see the wrath of God. Are you going to be persecuted? Yes. But that's a whole different thing. Man and the devil persecute you. But the wrath of God comes from Almighty God to an unholy group of people on the earth. And God loves those people. But do you understand the wrath of God and the persecution of man, two different things, two different groups of people, two different sources. Do you follow? You must understand that. And don't let them confuse you. Because persecution from man is not the wrath of God. When the wrath of God happens, you can read about it in Revelation 6 through 19, you'll know it when it happens. And, but actually you won't. If you're a believer, you're not going to see it. So let's have choir practice here. On the count of three, everybody smile, your biggest smile. One, two, three. (laughs) Yes, like the Grinch. Remember how he had that little circles around as he smiled, as he looked down upon Whoville? Yes, that big old smile that just wrinkles around like that. What a Grinchly trick. Ah, but the Lord loves. He loves you. What does it tell us in Ephesians 2? Now, therefore, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They set the cornerstone first, and they build off of that. For any of you who are masons, you know that. Any any mason in the room? I know there's a couple. When they're building a structure, they get that, font, that cornerstone just right. They spend all their time plumbing it and getting it just right, and then they set that thing, and then they start building off of that. And the sure, as sure as that foundation stone is, the straighter the line. 
and the more secure and right that building is. Jesus is the foundation stone. He is the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, you and I, these living stones being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Hallelujah. And notice in verse 18 in our text, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. This doesn't mean that the church won't go through difficulties, and we've already looked at that. Otherwise, Jesus would have to apologize to the first century church. They went through horrible things. Have you read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Let me ask you a question. Was that the wrath of God or was that the persecution of man? The persecution of man. In 2 Timothy, Paul said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You may not suffer the persecution like they suffered. You know, for you, it may just be a job offer being passed up over you. It may be somebody in your workplace making fun of you. Oh, you're too holier than thou. How you doing, Miss Goody Two-Shoes? Have you heard those, those comments that are hurled at you as insults? Who cares? Wear it as a badge of honor. <laughs> Wear it as a badge of honor. The first century church was persecuted sorely, but we, the church, we may also go through some persecution before the rapture. Can you see it happening already? Can you feel it happening? It's happening. Because Hades meant death to the Jews. This may also be a reference to the resurrection, seeing that the resurrection of believers defeats death. The Jews, when they heard this thing from Jesus, they were thinking the kingdom was coming sooner than you know, later. They didn't understand the church age quite yet, although Jesus was intimating it and getting them prepared for that. But the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What does it tell us in Paul and Corinthians? He tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. This is speaking of the rapture of the church. And we also shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Hallelujah. Let that lighten you up. Because that's something to rejoice about. That's something to do a dance a little jig for. Oh Lord, fill your church again with the excitement of knowing these things. Do it in me. And he goes on in verse 19, and he says, And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So not only to Peter, but to the disciples, and also to us, God has given us great authority and great responsibility. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, what did Jesus say to us in the Beatitudes? Speaking to the believers and to his disciples, he says, you are the salt of the earth. That's a responsibility, isn't it? That's an authority, isn't it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's a responsibility. He goes on and says, let your... Um, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a responsibility. There's been a lot of ink on the page over the centuries concerning this verse 19, and it's not easy to understand. But this statement to Peter seems to be a promise that will find ultimately its fulfillment in the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Because he speaks of the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, which is the kingdom is yet before us. P 
Peter will have great responsibility, but I also mean it could refer to whatever Peter deems to be worthy or to be, or to be bound or prohibited. The same would be bound or prohibited in heaven. And whatsoever he looses or dismisses or removes the restraint of will also be done in heaven. And how does he do that? Does he do it based on his own feeling? No, he, he hears from God and then he acts accordingly. And see, that's the, that's the response to all of us. We hear, we, we, we read the word of God, we hear from God, we hear from him, and then we respond. And I believe that that's may what this means. And it also may refer to the privilege that he has of the life-changing gospel coming into agreement with God that those who believe in Christ, their sins will be forgiven. And also those who do not believe in Christ, their sins will not be forgiven. And by the way, although this wasn't an authority given to Peter, Jesus also gave this to all of his disciples. And we see that in John chapter 20. Remember, after his resurrection, the very night of his resurrection, he appeared in front of his disciples, and they were all afraid. And what did he tell them? In that meeting with them, he says, if you forgive the sin, and he was speaking to all of them, all 12 or 11 of them, Judas had already hung himself. He said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So even though Peter was given this authority along with the rest, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Peter was the leader of the apostles. It doesn't mean that he was the pope or even the bishop of Rome. Peter was one of three who was very blessed. Peter, James, and John. Remember Jesus, as we'll see in the next chapter which we won't get into until the week following next. He took those three up on the mount and was transfigured before the three of them, Peter, James, and John. So he has this great authority. But Peter may have been the disciple's spokesman, but James, Jesus' half-brother, was actually the leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And you can read that in Acts 15 yourself. It was James, Jesus' half-brother, who was the leader in Jerusalem. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And this seems kind of odd um, that Jesus would do this. But remember, Jesus' hour had not yet come. It was approaching. We know that this hour that would come for Jesus wasn't a literal 24-hour period it was, or, or even a 60 minutes. It was rather an indeterminate portion of time. We would call it Passion Week, that week before he would be crucified. That is really what is spoken of by his hour. And there were times when Jesus would say that his hour um, had not been fulfilled. In John 7, verse 30, They sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, verse 19, again, same thing. His hour had not not yet come, but there was a time when he said, my hour has come. And it's recorded for us in John chapter 12, verse 23, before he was uh, with the disciples in the upper room. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And this was a week prior to his crucifixion. So it's speaking of his hour, his period of time that he would be ultimately rejected and the powers of hell will come after to crucify him. But again, we'll finish here. Who is Jesus to you? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he Jeremiah or one of the prophets? Is he what the Jehovah's Witnesses have said? That he's just a God. Is he the half-spirit brother of Satan or Lucifer, like the Mormons claim? Or is he, like we've been reading now, is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? And that really, folks, is a huge thing to consider. And because we read the Word of God, we know who Jesus is. So when somebody comes along and says to you, who is Jesus to you? You have something to answer for. And as you continue to read the word of God, as it gets more into you, as your life becomes more of an expression of God through, in and through your life, you are going to be a walking epistle. Like Peter said, you're going to be a walking epistle. People are going to watch your life and they're going to say, 
I know who Jesus is to you because I see it all over you. I see it in the decisions you make. I see it in the words that you say. I see it in your attitude toward everything that happens to you. How is it that your car can break down and everybody else is smashing their hand and cursing God and you're the only one going, oh, praise the Lord. I mean, I don't know that I really would say that, but I, I wouldn't be banging my you know, fist on the thing, why me, God, and cursing God. Oh, well, I'm not going to get to Wegmans today. He's got a plan. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm, I'm going to be patient and wait on him. How can you do that unless God is with you? That is the Jesus who indwells you. The Spirit of God indwells you. Who is Jesus to you? Know it. Know who he is. And apart from here, you're not going to know. Doctrine is important. What is written in here is important. It's all that matters. Who is Jesus? Let's stand together and let's pray. Lord God, Lord, you've given us this book. Lord, and I think of the, the first century church, and Lord, all they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even written. It was, it was in the formation. It was being written, and it hadn't even been written yet. And yet, Lord, all of us today, we have a copy of the Old and the New Testament, consistent all throughout your word, you're consistent in the plan of salvation, who you are, and your great love for each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would convince each one of us who Jesus is and that there'd be nothing in this world that could pry our hands off of that truth, off of that knowledge, off of that steadfast rock, that Petra that you are, that nothing would be able to take us apart from that, Lord, that we would surrender to you so, Lord, have your way with us today. May we spread that news. May we share with others who Jesus really is. And, Lord, you are loving and compassionate. You are gracious and wonderful. You are almighty God, wonderful in power and strength and glory. You are all things pure and all things holy. Lord, you are light and you dwell in unapproachable light. You are almighty God in whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. You are the son of God, the great I am, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the son of God. You're the logos, the great shepherd, the door. So many thousands of things you are. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.